0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, I know we've talked about how episode 400 is going to be the last episode of Seeing and Believing, but I propose we go out with a bang. I think that we have big things in future for Seeing and Believing, and I think that we should close out by starting our very own Podcast Fight Club.
0: that is definitely going out with a bang. Are we insured for that sort of thing? Are we bringing in other podcast hosts? How do you how do you envision this?
1: We'll figure out the details a little bit later. But I vote we go absolutely maximalist, just like the two movies that we are reviewing on this week's episode.
0: Fair enough. I trust your instincts, Sarah. They better be good ones. We are going to be talking about two very colorful movies this week. First up will be Emma Seligman's film Bottoms about a very exaggerated high school with its own Fight Club.
1: And then we're going to be following that up, not with Fight Club, but with a movie about battles between the sexes. That is going to be the 1953 Howard Hawks film, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes.
0: Put up your dukes on episode 398 of Seeing and Believing. Yes, we're here on episode 398 of Seeing and Believing. Episode 400 is fast approaching. We're in the end times. The podcast Fight Club's got us looking a little bit worse for wear, but we're going to go the distance. We have what it takes to be a champ. We
1: will finish strong.
0: <laughs> that is the plan, and we've got a couple of very strong films to talk about this week. We are going to be rectifying a blind spot of mine with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes in the watchless segment but for now, Sarah, let's uh, turn our attention to a little comedy titled Bottoms. Now, this film reteams director Emma Seligman with actress Rachel Sennett after their well reviewed collaboration on Shiva Baby, a movie that I sadly haven't caught up with yet. I don't know if you've got any experience with it, Sarah.
1: Oh, man. It's a panic attack in about 76 minutes. I enjoyed it, I thought it was pretty strong, especially for a debut. Rachel Sennett is really good at playing absolutely like despicable characters that i still want to root for so if you're interested in that at all it's it's i don't i won't say it's a fun time but it is a good time okay yeah
0: and uh since we both have seen bodies 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 we can definitely confirm your thoughts on rachel senate's talent mm-hmm. for playing charismatic despicable people yes <laughs> uh in this movie uh which is taking aim at the high school raunch comedy, Sennett is joined by Ayo Edebiri as the central pair, two high schoolers trying to overcome the dual stigma of being both unpopular and untalented, and also gay, in their quest to get closer to the two cheerleaders they pine for. Their solution? Start up an all-girls fight club to train female students to resist the tyrannical rule of the high school football team and their cult-like sway over the student body and The Faculty. So pretty colorful synopsis there. Sarah, I am curious to know your thoughts. This film has some pretty diverse forebears. There's, of course, the improvisational Apatovian-style comedies of the 2000s, like Super Bad, 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, as well as the more biting satire of a movie like 1988's Heathers. Mm-hmm. So my question for you is, how well do you think Bottoms does in serving as a successor in that tradition?
1: I think it works pretty well. I was also thinking of Booksmart when I was watching this mm-hmm. movie too, which is a much more recent uh, teenage ranch fest comedy. Um, and a movie that I also liked quite a lot. Bottoms is doing a lot, throwing a lot at the wall. And I think the joke density, and then also the chemistry between our two leads, um, really takes that movie quite far. And it takes kind of a bizarre premise and says, well, what if we actually took this elevated, slightly unhinged premise and treated it with just about the right level of seriousness that it deserves, which is to say, there's a little bit of seriousness, but we're mostly here (laughs) for the laughs. And I thought it worked pretty well. I'm curious to know what you thought. I know that the teen comedy of this type is not necessarily your bag. Yeah, I mean like you know, raunch comedies
0: can be hit or miss for me. Um I wasn't the hugest fan of book smart or super bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I do really like uh other Apatow comedies that do kind of lean into that humor. So it kind of depends on the quality of the jokes and also maybe the quality of the performances. Mm-hmm. And I do think Bottoms has the goods when it comes to that. I think uh Senna and Edabiri, I I keep going back and forth on which of them I think is my favorite performance in this film. I think they're both very funny and they both kind of bring their own very distinctive energy to their roles. So they're a great kind of odd couple Mm -hmm. uh, dynamic going in this movie. Um, I also really like how um, Seligman, you know, doesn't lean just on, Uh, dialogue riffing for the humor. There's a lot of great little jokes tucked away in the production design, the framing and just kind of these little bits of business that Seligman finds room for within her frame that nobody really comments on but are there if you're kind of eagle-eyed and you're paying attention and as someone who is kind of disappointed with Barbie being so focused on like triple underlining all of its satire, I really appreciated Seligman uh, having a little bit of a lighter hand there and trusting her audience to, you know, see the visual jokes as well as the verbal jokes.
1: Yeah, I feel like I need to watch this movie at least three more times to get all of those visual jokes. But every time my eye wandered across the frame, I found something else that was funny or something else that sparked my recognition or something else that... Felt like it had been sort of placed there on purpose, but not in a way that was calling any attention to it. It's just there to be funny. And I think that really speaks to the joke density of this movie, both in terms of the script and then also the way that everything is framed. Seligman trusts her audience to understand what's going on with her two main characters. And she's willing to take us along for a ride with them. And she's also willing to just sort of let the jokes wash over you, both in terms of framing and visual gags, and then also in terms of just the number of jokes that are happening here. And I think she trusts the audience to be able to keep up. And then if something doesn't necessarily land exactly how you'd want it to, there's going to be another joke about 30 seconds later that will probably work for you. I was laughing out loud quite a lot. And I think a lot of that speaks to both the strength of the script, at least the way that the dialogue is written. And then also the improvisational nature of this movie. It feels very loose and it feels very comfortable. And I think that that speaks to the trust that Seligman has for her performers, and their ability to deliver a line and then also potentially come up with something a little bit funnier. So um, especially with some of the people who I hadn't really seen on the screen before, or at least not on the film screen before. I loved Marshawn Lynch as Mr. G, the hmm. teacher in this movie. I don't know if you know who Marshawn Lynch is.
0: I I have vague memories of of him doing, like, uh, segments with Conan O'Brien back in the day. Okay, so this is
1: the extent of my sports knowledge and cred. Um, Marshawn Lynch was the running back for the Seattle Seahawks from 2010 to 2015, which conveniently was the same time that I lived in Seattle. So he was a crucial part of that team getting its Super Bowl win, which happened to happen on my 21st birthday. So I am legally obligated to be a diehard Seahawks fan, especially for... Marshawn Lynch. And I think there. he's got the goods. He's really funny in this.
0: Yeah, he's he's got again kind of this this laid back energy that complements the the almost frenzied kind of energies that especially Senate brings to her character where she you know she's always talking a mile a minute, she's always hatching some sort of some sort of plan or some sort of uh, scheme and to see that kind of bounce off of this very impassive exterior that Marshawn <laughs> Lynch uh and also Edabiri to a certain extent also is just uh it's it's really fun. Yeah.
1: yeah, there's good interplay, I think, especially between the two leads. Like you said, Senate is kind of this motor mouthed, has a lot of harebrained schemes and then is going to try to wriggle out of them when things start to turn bad. Whereas Eda is not really playing the straight person. Um, And that's sort of a pun because neither of these characters are straight either. But she's also a little bit more under the radar and a little bit more um, understated, I think, than Senet's extremely over-the-top performance. And those two balance each other out incredibly well. They've got really good chemistry together. And it's fun to watch their two personalities sort of bounce off each other. And then I think where the movie also really works is that comedically they work well separately too. It's not like the two are propping each other up in terms of their performances. They're elevating each other when they're both on screen, but they also work separately when they're playing off other characters too.
0: I, I also, well, I appreciated how it's a, a pretty perceptive look at how there's there are two sort of responses that a high school social outcast can have to their social status. They can either you know be very brash like uh Senate's PJ or they can be much more diffident and uh wallflowerish like uh Edibiri's Josie mm-hmm. and um I I appreciated how they aren't uh cartoonish in in those qualities they they feel just realistic enough they don't f- that they don't feel just like complete jokes but they are so fluent, I guess, in that kind of pot emotional and posture that uh, you totally buy them as uh, parts of this very exaggerated high school scene. And I want to talk about that because yes, the this is a movie that does comment on social mores um, by kind of really exaggerating them uh, to to the nth degree and sort of trusting the audience to have a strong reaction to that and then kind of wonder, okay, well, why am I having that strong reaction and kind of uh, provoking contemplation in that way? I'm curious to know what you made of all that.
1: I mean, I dug it because it felt smart in the ways that it was exaggerating what needed to be exaggerated and then also leaving what needed to be understated, understated. It's not all working in the exact same register. And I think that that lends um, a certain nuance to a movie that otherwise probably wouldn't be particularly nuanced. Um, So this movie is primarily a teen sex comedy, but it's also a commentary on, I think, the roles of gender within high school. And then it's also really interested in the ways that a person's intentions and the way that the consequences of their actions may not necessarily line up. And it's doing this in a way that doesn't feel like it's trying to preach a sermon or teach a lesson. It's just very carefully observant. And I think that's what I like about a lot of comedy is the comedy that works for me is comedy that is carefully observant about something that is ridiculous in the world or funny in the world or messed up in the world, and then can sort of tweak those ideas until they become just large enough or just exaggerated enough for you to be able to keep track of where that maps onto the real world. And then you get kind of the kick of there's a punchline here and it's funny, but also, huh, maybe I hadn't considered this particular issue in the way that I will now, now that I've heard that joke or seen that movie. Um, I don't know. High school also feels like something that is is not very familiar to me personally. I did not attend a public high school. So for me as an outsider, it's kind of fascinating to watch these characters go through these situations and understand that this is not remotely what a normal high school looks like. But it does look like the high school of the movies in the late 90s and the late 80s of a lot of the other teen comedies that this movie is sending up. And so it's not just a commentary on what it's like to be a high schooler nowadays, because it's not trying to do that. But it is sending up other teen comedies in the movies, I think, in a way that feels very smart and feels very studied and also isn't trying to make a point for itself. It's just trying to be funny, if that makes sense.
0: And I, and I think in just trying to be funny, it kind of succeeds in commenting on the actual world in which we live without belaboring the points, mm-hmm. which I very much appreciated. Um, I, wa- I want to call out the production design again, because I think that quality you pinpointed is how it it doesn't necessarily feel like the way things are today quote unquote Mm -hmm. um but it also does sort of feel like the high school of some of these earlier teen comedies comes down a lot to the production design because the way that uh nate jones uh works with uh emma seligman to create this high school that feels kind of of many different times at once, so they use the the same kind of slang that you you know see on the internet today. Um, the, there's a lot of turns of phrases that feel very very much up to the minute, modern. And yet, the uh, uh, one of the football players uses a
1: flip phone, specifically a razor from like 2007, right? Yeah.
0: Um, the the way that a lot of these high schoolers are played by people who are very obviously older than high school age, and they're not even really trying to hide it. it. kind of harks back to the teen comedies of the 80s, where that was sort of the way high school was just kind of portrayed in pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gives gives the this high school a feeling of, you're not, it's not trying to be rooted in a time and place. It's not trying to say, comment on the lives of teens today in the same way that something like eighth grade was Mm -hmm. uh, by bo burnham but in kind of going for that more free-floating uh milieu for this particular story it feels much more broadly relatable to just society in general and i think maybe that's what it's more interested in more so than just sort of what the youths are, are going through these days, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's got kind of that same timeless feeling that It Follows sort of had as well in terms of mm. being willing to pull in a few anachronisms and then shed the details of modern life that may or may not necessarily be all that helpful or conducive to the story. Um, which I really appreciated. I also think the strength of the production design kind of speaks to Seligman's sensibility and being willing to bring together a lot of those jokes as well. A lot of those jokes are just tossed off props. There's a moment where um, one character is going through the lunch line and they're handed a fruit cup and it's filled with dirty water. (laughs) And then immediately afterwards... Um, a football player goes through the same lunch line and is handed a very pristine, much larger fruit cup. And then...
0: And a steak.
1: And a steak. (laughs) And the football player ends up calling attention to the fact that he was handed this specific fruit cup, not because it's better than all of the other fruit cups at this school, but because it happens to have pineapple in it and he's allergic to pineapple. And so it just kind of heightens the joke and zags it in a way that I wasn't fully expecting, but which I appreciated as a fellow hater of pineapple.
0: <laughs> oh, I I can't follow you out onto that limb. I'm a <laughs> big pineapple fan over here. But yeah, th- those little throwaway gags are... I, I just... I love... Uh, movie comedies that do have that kind of confidence to just put really detailed thought into things in the corners of the frame that most people won't notice on on a first viewing and may not ever notice. And yet they're in there and that kind of attention to detail is very much appreciated there's also a a lot of little jokes tucked away on bulletin boards in the school hallways Mm -hmm. um that again are are kind of sneakily satirical uh of you know like the society in which we live there's there's one little flyer on a on a billboard that uh is obviously addressed to the female students and telling them to smile more yes um the the flyers that are advertising this big, you know, upcoming uh football game that's going to be sort of the the fulcrum on which their entire season uh turns is very focused on Jeff the the star quarterback who is overtly sexualized mm-hmm. <laughs> but in but in a way that's not leering so much as he's almost like a like a greek god or something he he's He's emblazoned on these billboards the same way that, you know, a carven statue of the idealized male form would be. And that's just very, it's funny just to see that. Like, it's just goofy mm-hmm. and ridiculous. But it also does sort of subtly jab at the way that uh, athletics and uh, gender roles within athletics kind of take shape in as a whole, not just in, in high school.
1: I think it's telling, too, that the entire football team is only ever seen in football pads the mm-hmm. entire movie runtime. We don't see them in any other form of costuming. They're just there because that's their entire worth and that's who they are and that's their identities as characters. And I think that that also underlines the way that other similar teen comedies of the past would have identified the football players as, oh, they're the football team. Oh, that's the high school quarterback. And this movie just kicks that up to 11 by saying, we're going to reduce these characters to just their identity and the sports that they play, but we're going to call that out visually and kind of underline just how ridiculous that is. And I don't know, it feels kind of resonant in a world in which a lot of people, the first thing you, the first question you ask them when you meet them is, what do you do? Like, what is your identity? What is it that you do? And this kind of feels like, pointing out a little bit of a root of that in finding your identity in the thing that you're best known for or the thing that you do. And in some cases that means that you're the school outcast and you'll get mean things painted on your locker, or it means that you're basically king of the high school. And I think it also speaks to the strength of uh, Nicholas Galazzini's performance as Jeff, um, that he's able to pull off that sheer simplicity, I think is the kindest way to put it. Um, where he's almost got a level of innocence to him specifically because he's never been told that he's anything other than the quarterback and therefore the most valuable person on the school grounds. He's effectively worshipped as a god. And one of the best visual gags, I thought, is a moment when he is in the school cafeteria seated at a long table with the rest of the football team. And they are laid out like Da Vinci's (laughs) Last Supper. And Mm. then to heighten things even further, there is uh, a recreation of the creation of Adam mural in which God is handing Adam a football, literally right behind (laughs) his head. Very funny sight gag. And it's just kind of left unnoticed. Like, I don't think we ever even fully see the full Last Supper tableau, but it's enough to see that Jeff is seated right in the middle of a long table where characters are only sitting on one side of it that just kind of sells the joke.
0: Yeah. That, that quasi religious iconography I think is very intentional because it is almost like a cult watching the way that not just the students worship this, this football team, but the way the, the faculty does as well. The way that, uh, at a at a pep rally, some of the female teachers are you know they they like you know they flash mm-hmm. uh, during the pep rally. They you know they're they're all going insane, even though presumably a pep rally is for the students, not for the faculty. And again, that's just a very sly way to sort of comment on the fact that the the people in power at this high school aren't really that much more mature than the people over whom they, they exercise that power. And that's, that's uh, an intriguing, provocative kind of line of thought to encourage as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's telling, too, that our two main characters, PJ and Josie, instead of trying to just completely undermine that order and authority that's been imposed on the school, um, also attempt in their own way to sort of recreate that same structure, but with themselves at the top as well. I think they've, it feels as though they have observed that everyone at the school is either valued for what they are and who they are, or they're not valued for who they are. And so the only way that they can find any form of value is to also become objects of worship themselves. And the only way that they can figure out how to do that is by creating this fight club for girls. And it's telling that they couch this in terms that would be appealing to everybody else around them they're trying to you know uplift women and you know hold holds people together in in sort of a sisterhood in a way where they've been previously neglected because of all of the focus on the football team but that upholding comes at the cost of their ulterior motive which is not to actually uphold other women or to break out of this cycle of football worship Um, it's just so that they can get other girls. And I think the movie is really good at underlining the full consequences of the decision to do that and then to really lean into that line of thinking in a way that doesn't render PJ or Josie cartoonishly evil. And I think it also serves to give a little bit of additional nuance to all of the other students at the school as well, but the movie also plays that out to its logical conclusion, and we end up seeing things start to fall apart a little bit. And I won't get into like the full details of how exactly that falls apart, but even though the entire movie is very over the top, the emotional fallout of the consequences of their decisions felt very realistic to me.
0: I, I liked how this movie makes it clear that simply having good politics or uh being on uh being of a certain group doesn't won't save you Mm -hmm. like uh the the social groups that all of these high schoolers are arranged into in this movie are you know obviously simplified but they're not like simplified morally it's not like the You know, everybody who's uh, in the popular clique are the bad guys and the outcasts are the good guys. Mm -hmm. It's much more saying like, you know what, uh, it's very possible to be self-serving regardless of which part of the social divide you're on. And again, I guess I just I really appreciated that uh, after like it's it's thorny in a way that I really appreciated after what I thought was kind of a very simplistic rendering of feminism in in Barbie, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, not that these movies have to be like in opposition to each other. I don't mean to put them in that direct of a relationship. Summer movie fight club. (laughs) But I I, I just bring it up as, as a way to highlight how Bottoms, I think, does comment on feminism and the way that It operates in a less than perfect society in ways that I found to be a lot more complex and interesting to think about than a a movie like Barbie that was trying to do similar things.
1: I think that really speaks to the confidence of Seligman's direction and Seligman and Sennett's writing for this movie, too, because they're not afraid to get into the messiness of this topic. They're not trying to boil something down into a single sentence summary of what it is like to be a woman in the world today because you simply cannot do that there are way too many different ways to be a woman in the world and bottoms gets at that complexity and the messiness of that and then also gets at what it means for different characters to be shoved into that jar of simplicity and what that does to you we see a lot of misfits In this fight club, but we also see a lot of the popular girls who are trying to break out of that system as well. And I think it's crucial that despite the ulterior motives of PJ and Josie in starting this club, the other women at the school also managed to get something kind of good out of it. And then they also have to deal with the fallout of everything falling apart too. It's not just a binary this thing was good because we found something good in it. Like there's a lot of messiness in the fact that it was founded on a pretty shaky foundation in the first place.
0: Yeah, that that whole thing that bottoms is doing is I think it's it's compelling enough that I I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of the the last act of this film because yes. it kind of lost me <laughs> which is why you know I I I you know I like this movie I don't love it because I think it does get messy and maybe unproductive ways towards the end mm-hmm. but I think part of the reason why I found that so frustrating was because up to that point I did think the the film was managing kind of to be the unicorn where it's it's you know, sneakily complex about a lot of these issues that it's commenting on. But it's not because it's, you know, setting out with laser focus to comment on those things. It's just focused on being really funny and sending up a lot of absurd things in the world around us. And the commentary kind of grows out of that. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that. Um, the The ending, it kind of felt like, Having constructed something so interesting in the first two acts, Seligman and Sennett didn't really know how to wrap it up, but I'm curious to know what you thought about that.
1: Yeah, that ending felt a little bit disappointing for me, although probably not as disappointing as you found it, largely because the movie is primarily here to have a good time with a lot of those tropes of previous teen comedies, and... I think it does manage to do that. It's just that it gets boiled down a little bit more simplistically than I would have liked, despite the plethora of visual gags that we also get towards the end of the movie, too. It's just that they're all kind of focused on one single point that the movie has alluded to up until the moment when it takes that turn. But hadn't really fully leaned into probably because structurally, the plot just didn't need it up until the point when it actually did. And for me, it felt really ridiculous. But so do a lot of other teen comedies. And so I was willing to give it a pass because it felt like it was sending up a lot of the climactic, we're going to make some very grand gestures, or we're going to, you know, beat the football team at their own game, essentially. And that sat okay with me because it was so over the top, kind of similarly to the register that the rest of the movie is working in. Where it disappointed me was that it was only focused on that one thing, whereas the rest of the movie was willing to branch out and go exploring a little bit more, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I I think I, you know, I mentioned Heathers at the beginning of the segment, and I think the interesting thing about Heathers is that it is also, you know, a satire of, you know, high school social cliques. Um, and it's it's funny in doing that, but it also, it's kind of deeply serious about skewering that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, if there was something that I was missing in Bottoms, it was sort of like that, that paradoxical combination where it's going to be very goofy about a lot of stuff, but it's going to be very serious about that goofiness, if that makes sense, to wrap it up in a way where it seemed like the climax naturally grew out of the conflicts that these that PJ and Josie uh were embroiling themselves in over the course of the film. I guess I kind of was hoping that it would stick the landing in that way.
1: Yeah, I suppose so. It's funny because I think I read Heather's laser focus almost as meanness. And so that movie kind of bounced off me in a way that Hmm. I'm I'm curious to know how I would read it now, now that it's been a few years since the last time I've seen it. Um, Bottoms feels a little bit more generous, I think, even towards the villains in its story. And so that's, that's one of the things that I liked about it was that it's not going to forgive these characters all their faults. But it's going to forgive them who they are, and I appreciated that.
0: Yeah, I, Jeff the quarterback feels kind of like a villain in the uh, the Ken vein. Like he's mm-hmm. he's a villain, but he's kind of like a doofus more than a mustache twirler. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh, yeah. Well, listeners, that is our review of Emma Seligman's Bottoms. If you've had a chance to see this in the theaters, we are definitely interested in hearing your thoughts. You can reach out to us on Letterboxd. Our handle over there is cbelievepod. You can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Stick around. We're going to be talking about gentlemen prefer blondes here in the watchlist segment in a bit. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, helping us keep the conversation about movies going. Uh, And this being one of the last episodes of Seeing and Believing, a lot of what we've been hearing from our listeners out there have been wishing us well. It's honestly, it's been really touching and really nice to hear. So thanks so much, guys, for writing in and just telling us your thoughts about the show and, uh, you know extending well wishes, it's been nice.
1: Yeah, it's really meant a lot. We heard from Felix Rodriguez over on the website, formerly known as Twitter, who (laughs) responded to us tweeting out about the new Substack saying, sad to see you will stop doing this exceptional podcast. Thank you, Felix. I look forward to hearing every week. We'll most definitely follow you on Substack. So that's very nice. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for letting us know how you feel about the podcast. And we're not actually going anywhere. We are still going to be publishing reviews. It'll just be in written form over at seeingandbelieving.substack.com.
0: Yeah, for sure. We also heard from Scott uh, over on Facebook, actually. Uh, He had this to share. He says, sad that there won't be new episodes to listen to, and especially because Sarah was so incredibly quick and insightful. Seriously, in a world of such banal criticism, where political posturing is the cheap and ubiquitous replacement for genuine thought, I've been deeply impressed at her ability to throw off one precise sentence that anticipates three paragraphs of my rambling response to a piece— But at least I'll have a couple of years of commutes still listening to new old episodes of Seeing and Believing. So
1: That's really kind, Scott. Thank you. I'm tongue-tied, genuinely.
0: (laughs) Where are your fancy words now, Sarah? They're gone. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for for writing, Scott. And, you know, our archives are not going anywhere. In case anyone anyone was wondering, you will still be able to access... Uh, all of our episodes over at com or on the podcatcher of your choice. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to be memory holding any of that anytime soon. And, you know, not to over promise necessarily, but there might be the chance that you might get a couple of podcast episodes uh, every now and then over on the Substack platform. So we might not be going away completely you'll still be able to hear our dulcet tones in audio (laughs) format in some ways
1: we did invoke vampire rules when i first joined the podcast once invited in you can't get rid of me and Mm -hmm. i think that includes occasional podcast episodes too
0: yeah for sure so thanks again scott for writing in and as sarah said if you still want to get in on the substack action we're over at seeingandbelieving.substack.com you can read our welcome message and subscribe over there And now it's time for the watch list, the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then we talk about it. So, Sarah, your pick to pair with our review of Bottoms this week was the Howard Hawks film from 1953, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Mm -hmm. This is a musical comedy probably best known for its iconic musical number Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend sang by the equally iconic Marilyn Monroe. And if that song is all you know about the movie, then you actually have a pretty good idea of what the entire movie is about, more or less. Monroe is half of a nightclub duo, the other half being played by the great Jane Russell. Mm -hmm. And both women are doing what they can to follow the typical script of getting married and settling down, but to do it on their terms. For Monroe's Lorelei, this looks like landing the richest man she can find. For Russell's Dorothy, money is a secondary consideration next to finding someone who can match her in intellect and attractiveness. So, uh, Sarah, I'm curious to know—I mean, obviously, that dynamic duo at the center of the film is an obvious tie-in, but— I'm curious to know if there were any other galaxy brain connections that you had between this and Bottoms.
1: I had quite a few, actually. So this is a sharp, dumb comedy that is ostensibly about sex, but is really about the knots that society ties itself into around the concept of sex. Um, It's sort of rom-commy, but definitely not a rom-com by any stretch. It's not a romantic movie. It's a funny movie, first and foremost, A couple of other connections, the chemistry between the leads in Bottoms and then also the chemistry between the leads in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes really works. The dialogue shines here as a big vehicle for a lot of those jokes. And then the costuming is also really good in both of these movies. So quite a lot of possible connections here, but I was primarily thinking about them as being sex comedies that aren't really sex comedies.
0: Yeah, uh, that totally makes sense. And, uh, I mean, the costuming especially, like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, having not seen this, you know, I've, of course I'd seen sort of clips of the Diamond's Our Girl's Best Friend number because, like I said, iconic. But the way that this film sort of flaunts its, its star's attractiveness and the money that they can uh, uh, just dump into the costuming budget is pretty lavish Mm -hmm. and and i think that contributes a lot to the fun of this movie is it is trying to be a lark and uh that's kind of the the main thing that i took away from it probably my favorite sequence from this movie is the uh scene where Uh, Dorothy is sort of surrounded by a bunch of shirtless hunks who are on the Olympic team just sort of working out and, you know, flexing and and doing their thing. Um, And, you know, she's just sort of diving, you know, kind of sashaying in and out as they do their their calisthenics. And they're all very attractive men, and she's a very attractive woman. And that's just, I, I think that the movie is really leaning into kind of, Those more surface level qualities because it's sort of pulling a rope a dope where you kind of think, oh, this is just a movie. It's just kind of, it's supposed to be about pretty people falling in love. And by getting you to underestimate it in that way, I think it does kind of land some pretty effective punches towards the end of the movie where it kind of wags its finger and says, you've been underestimating. Uh, a lot of things in watching this movie.
1: Mm -hmm, 100%. I love that song and dance number, especially the delivery that Jane Russell has right before it starts, where she's watching somebody doing some bicep curls, and she just tells him, honey, you'll hurt yourself. And then she launches into this song about how she can't find love, even though she's surrounded by a team of Olympic athletes who are very clearly smitten with her and have been ever since they got onto. The cruise ship that they're on. So I guess a little bit of plot framing. Not that the plot really matters all that much. Um, Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe's characters are en route to France, where Lorelei, who's played by Marilyn Monroe, is set to hopefully wed a young heir. Who she is, she's interested in his money, and his father is suspicious of that. And so they have to get out of the country in order for her to be able to make the wedding and somehow get away with a happy ending. And ostensibly Dorothy, played by Jane Russell, is there as a chaperone, but she's really there to have just as much fun as Lorelei is going to have and hijinks ensue. And there's a a subplot involving a private eye who's been hired to follow Lorelai, who gets romantically entangled with Dorothy, which is one of the other fun parts about this movie is watching the push and pull of Lorelai chasing the richest men that she can find, and Dorothy chasing the most beautiful men that she can find. And both of them kind of getting, um, getting the rug pulled out from underneath them multiple times, despite all of their best efforts. And... I think a lot of the fun here is watching them do that and then get up and try again and not be daunted by the fact that everything's working against them because they're going to succeed no matter what, because that's what they're that's what they going to do. It, it's kind of as though the script sort of dictates that sort of happy ending. You know what's going to come. And the joy of it is watching these characters try to achieve that goal, and also look really good while they're doing it too.
0: Yeah, the um, the script was written by Charles Letterer, who no slouch by any means. You know, wrote *His Girl Friday*, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a whole bunch of of other you know absolute classics. And the thing about a movie like *Gentlemen Prefer Blondes* or *His Girl Friday* is, you know, that that dialogue because it's so. So perfect, you know, perfect is a good way to describe it. You know, actual people don't fire off these one liners. They don't have that kind of zip to them. And I think that's integral to creating sort of that foregone conclusion quality that you were highlighting where, you know, they're going to make it. You know, Mm -hmm. this is not going to be a movie that's really going to make us seriously doubt that Marilyn Monroe is going to have a hard time finding a man. You know, like this is not that it's not going to try to pull that. Um, and the writing, I think, because it is so self-assured, that kind of draws us into a world where these women can be self-assured that they're going to land on their feet. They're going to make it. In the meantime, it's kind of annoying, though, that you know stuff keeps kind of getting in the way. And I think that's um, summed up perfectly in the kind of the cold open to the movie where they sing an entire musical number about how, that's the case. No matter, where, no matter where they go, men are all the same. Mm-hmm. They'll be all right, but it's kind of annoying that men are all the same no matter where they go.
1: And I think annoying is the right word to use here because it doesn't really get much more than a level of annoyance. So after the prerequisite breakup that's going to happen about three quarters of the way through the movie, our two heroes find themselves at a cafe in France with absolutely no money. And they sing a song about how they've they've kind of landed sort of on their feet, but with not much else. And the way that that song is delivered is also very joyful. And there's just a hint of irritation in it because they've been foiled in their plans, but never fear, they're going to be able to find themselves another nightclub job in Paris. It is France after all, and they'll be able to land on their feet. It's just going to take them about five minutes to lick their wounds and then be on their way.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think the performances do so much to sell that as well um i like how marilyn monroe spends most of the movie kind of playing into the typecasting that you associate with her you know she's she's blonde she's got kind of that that wide-eyed look expression on her face she's got the that breathy line delivery she refers to her fiance as daddy Mm -hmm. and she's constantly just obsessing over how she she just loves jewelry and pretty things and wants as much of them as she can get um and then uh, at the end of the movie she kind of there are a couple of line deliveries that Monroe gives us and a couple of very subtle changes she makes in her expression that makes it clear that Lorelai has been playing everyone around her for fools oh, yeah. and of course Way earlier in the movie, Dorothy lampshades that by saying, like, you know, you think you know her, but you don't know her. She's more than meets the eye. And, you know, the character she tells that to kind of brushes that off. And the audience kind of of brushes, might brush it off as well until kind of those late scenes where you realize, oh, Monroe is very much aware of how she's perceived by her audience. This character, Lorelai, is very much aware of how she's perceived by the people around her. And she's going to lean into that because if you're going to be underestimated, you might as well get some advantage from that. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that's a a nice note that didn't have to be in this movie for it to work, but I think that's kind of what makes it more than than just a lark. There's something a little bit uh, savvier and more clever going on under the surface there.
1: Yeah, maybe that's another... um similarity with bottoms i think in that the comedy is working off those stereotypes and then serving to kind of undermine them and point out the flaws in them while leaning into them at the exact same time i love that confrontation between lorelei and her fiance's father who's played by taylor holmes um because he tells her explicitly like you cannot fool me and she tells him exactly like i don't intend to i don't want to But I bet I could if I needed to. Mm -hmm. And the way that she delivers that line, which I've sort of paraphrased, is there's a level of enthusiasm in it as though she's almost in it partly just for the chase. And then also because she knows precisely how smart she is and she knows how much everybody else around her has underestimated her. And she can use that to her advantage. and. I think it's a testament to her character that she's not going to do that to absolutely everybody. She's only going to do it when she knows that she needs to. And I don't know, I find that character trait really fascinating because it does reveal additional depths that it's really easy to write off when you're watching a Marilyn Monroe character on the screen. Also, her comedic timing is just absolutely impeccable. She's so good in this Um, It's not my favorite performance of hers, but it's pretty darn close. And I think a lot of that comes with the enthusiasm with which she throws herself into those musical numbers. And then also just the way that she plays off of her fiancé, who's very much a straight man. And then also the way that she bounces off Jane Russell. Um, The chemistry between those two is just absolutely fantastic.
0: Absolutely. And and Hawks knows how to shape the movie around... Monroe and Russell to accentuate those those qualities that you're, that you're talking about. I like how that con- that exchange that you just talked about ends uh, between Lorelai and her fiancé's father, who's, you know, very much against their marriage. And he says, essentially, he says, there's no way you're going to convince me to approve of this marriage. And then, at, as he's saying that, though, we're already dissolving into the wedding scene yes. <laughs> as Monroe begins to speak. And that's... Probably my favorite joke in the entire movie is, is that this, this guy thinks that he's so superior to her and that there's no way that she's going to be able to talk him into anything he doesn't want to do. And the, the, the joke is that the fix is already, in she's already got him in her pocket. He just doesn't know it yet.
1: It's kind of a fun continuation of a joke from earlier in the movie. There's a number called Bye Bye Baby where everybody's getting ready to ship out on the boat to head to France. And I swear there is a sequence in here where the shot is designed to quote the Lady Eve, specifically Uh Barbara Stanwyck conning Uh Henry Fonda. Only it's Marilyn Monroe and her fiance, who's played by Tommy Noonan, and he's clearly besotted with her he already doesn't know what to do with himself around her even before they start this musical number and then the two of them sort of cuddle up in a very similar way that feels kind of reminiscent of that sequence in the lady eve and the entire time she's promising him that she's going to get up to absolutely no funny business on this trip and the line delivery i think is something along the lines of, I'm going to be in my bedroom every post-Meridian with my diary and a copy of the book by Mr. Gideon, which is just such a great joke um, because it kind of speaks to the morality that she's working to at least say that she's upholding. And it's also just a fun piece of wordplay as well. I, I appreciate it. Uh,
0: that that lyric, I there's, there's something about just a, a well-turned phrase in, in a lyric that just makes me very happy there, there it, it must just scratch some itch inside my brain uh that i i, I don't know I, I love that line that that you mentioned mm-hmm. um it it makes me if there's a complaint i have about gentlemen prefer blondes it's that we don't have somebody like henry fonda who's so good at playing kind of a, a pushover mm-hmm. that i you know the the male characters in this movie are kind of Very, you know, they are good pushovers and serviceable love interests to be overmatched by Russell and Monroe. Um, But I do kind of find them to be kind of so, so pushovery that it's kind of, it takes away a little bit of the fun of seeing them, seeing the women get what they want because you kind of don't want them to end up with these, these, these wet dish rags of guys you want you want them to find somebody like Henry Fonda who is kind of you know a dimpled pretty boy but he's also Henry Fonda mm-hmm. and instead you know we, we've got uh Elliot Reed and Tommy Noon in here which they're you know nothing against them but they're not exactly setting the world on fire with uh, their looks or their charisma
1: and I think the movie knows that crucially the very last shot is the camera zooming in on their dual wedding day past the men so that it only frames Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. They're the two who win and who they won with doesn't even really matter all that much because this movie isn't about two women finding love in the arms of a man. It's about these two women managing to succeed in a situation where the deck is effectively stacked against them. And... I have my quibbles about maybe the morality of that necessarily, but it's also a really fun story to watch. And I appreciate that in a world where there are so many movies out there where the end game is for the guy to just get the girl and the girl is kind of a non-figure as well. I like that we get these two very distinct, very interesting women who also manage to succeed and they get the guy as well. And I'm fine with that. It works for me.
0: Yeah, I guess I, I guess where I'd get tripped up is like, it's great to see them succeed, but I would like them to also be happy, and it's hard for me to imagine Jane Russell being happy with Elliot Reid, you know, five years down the road. Yeah,
1: that definitely tracks.
0: Um, Well, thanks for introducing me to uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I did have a good time with the movie. I'm glad. Listeners, if you uh, had a chance to watch along with us, we're definitely interested to hear your thoughts on the movie as well. You can hit us up on Letterboxd or over email, as we already mentioned. Next week is going to be the very last of the regularly scheduled watch list segments. So I am going to break the rules slightly just because I kind of wanted to go out with with one that tied in really strongly with the new release that we're going to be talking about. So next week we are going to be talking about the latest uh, Hercule Poirot mystery from Kenneth Branagh, A Haunting in Venice, mm-hmm. and I really wanted to have something that tied in really strongly thematically with that. So even though I've not seen Robert Altman's 2001 film Gosford Park, I couldn't resist picking that for the watch list segment just to— see if it if it lives up to the hype. I've heard so many good things and I'm looking forward to catching up with it.
1: I'm going to say you're still within the rules of the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. There's <gasps> oh, no okay. stipulation that the host uh-huh. picking the movie also has to have seen that movie, too. And in fact, I've done that twice. We did that when we watched Buck and the Preacher and also Last of the Mohicans. So yeah. I'd say you're well within there, your rights.
0: There, there is legal precedent for it, and we are going to rules lawyer this into being uh, legitimate. So, yes. okay, that's that's what we're going to do. Gosford Park is locked in for next week's watch list segment. I'm looking forward to talking about that. Me too. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Claussen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McClendon.
1: I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson.
0: And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. All right. Okay, hold open.
1: You want me to lead in?
0: Uh, sure. Cool. <clears throat> All right. All right. Here we go. Take one. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, we've talked about how we're bringing Seeing and Believing to a close. And I propose that we go out with an absolute bang. (laughs) And I think that we should close out Seeing and Believing by starting our very own podcast Fight Club.
0: Okay. That is... That's pretty colorful. Are you sure we're insured for this? Uh,
1: oh, insurance, schm insurance. I do not care. <laughs> we're going to go maximalist, just like the two movies that we are going to be reviewing on the podcast this week.
0: Fair enough. First up is going to be Emma Seligman's Bottoms about another Fight Club at a certain. Um, mm, uh, I I I lost that. I'm. Let's start from the top. I like where that goes. I think we can tighten it up, and i will also like help me. Get the momentum to lead into that. Sounds good. Okay. All right.
1: Take two.